And so uh, this morning, we're going to celebrate communion together. And that'll be a good reminder for us that once again, we remember that what Jesus accomplished at the cross, what he came to the earth to do, uh, all the promises are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. We don't have anything to fear as we face these different situations. And I think that what's going to happen in eternity is that we're going to continue to have this unfolding revelation of, oh, so that's why that happened. And oh, that's, that's why that occurred. That makes sense. That's why I met this person. That's why I was introduced to this situation. All of those things are going to begin to fall into place. Aren't you glad that's going to happen at some point one day? And so we, we do live with a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's a living hope. It's a hope that continues to unfold. And we go from glory to glory with a new revelation every day that God is making sense out of things. And so today we want to start kind of a three-part series leading up to Christmas where we're talking about re-gifting. And I don't know if any of you have ever been guilty of this. You don't have to confess it or admit it if you have. But everybody at one time or another at Christmas time, you've received a gift, and it's a gift that's sort of nice. It's not like a white elephant type gift, but it's like some cologne or like a new tie or a scarf. And it's like, yeah, not something you would wear, not something you really would like. But it's like especially one that came from one of your kids or something, and you look at it and you go, oh, thank you so much. This is so sweet. And then next, the next year at work, you know, you have a Christmas party, right? And nobody ever will ever know as you repackage, you know, you wrap up that gift and you give it to somebody at a Christmas party, you know, English leather cologne or something like that, and you give it. And somebody says, oh, thank you so much for this gift. And I, I, I know I thought for a long time about how, you know, when I picked your name, I knew this would be for you. And they never knew that it was stuck in the back of a closet. All you had to do was clean the dust off of it and just re-gift it. None of you have ever done that before, right? Yeah, yeah, just me, right. Uh-huh. So, but this morning, we want to begin to redeem the phrase of re-gifting and redeem the negative perspective about it and put a positive spin on it because when we receive a gift, there is a gift that we have all received that we are very excited about passing on and that is the reality of what we celebrate at Christmas which is re-gifting Jesus. The present, the gift that's been packaged for all of us it's a pleasure and a delight for every one of us to re-gift and give away Jesus to other people. And so for that, I want us to look together at John 4. And uh, we're going to look at John 4, not the whole chapter, but quite a bit of it. And I'm going to read a little bit at a time and talk about how the woman at the well taught us some, teaches us some lessons about re-gifting Jesus to other people. So John chapter 4, verse 1, we'll just begin to look at the first four verses to start. <coughs> now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus 
was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Now I want to remind you about that last phrase that he had to pass through Samaria and why that was so significant because back in history, back in around 722 B.C. and during the Assyrian captivity and in 586 B.C. when the Medes and Persians came in and, and put the Jews in captivity, there was something that happened to the Jewish family. They did something that was a violation of the instructions they had received in the Old Testament in the first five books of the Bible, which was a warning, don't ever intermarry with the people that you live with in the Promised Land. So while they were in captivity, some of those that are part of the Jewish family gave in to the pressure of intermarrying. So they intermarried with the Persians, and so many of those that intermarried ended up in this region in Palestine called Samaria, between Judea and Galilee. And any pure, kosher Israelite avoided Samaria like the plague. But what is significant about verse 4 is it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And it's interesting because there's this little word, a Greek word, D-E-I. And any time that word is used in the New Testament, it has the idea of intention, like someone is pushing you to go in that direction. Or some kind of compulsion that says, I've got to go there. I don't know why. It doesn't make sense. There's every reason not to go, but I need to go that direction down that road. And so when it says he had to pass through Samaria, there was some kind of divine, sovereign intent that was stirring in Jesus' heart. He knew there was some reason he was supposed to go that direction. And of course, the Jewish or the, the disciples who were following the rabbi closely had no choice, even though I'm sure that they were wondering and maybe even questioned what he was doing, but that's what he did, was he starts his journey passing through Samaria. So now we go to verse 5 through verse 8. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now what do you notice, if you look at verse 6, what do you notice about the time of day, which is just the sixth hour, and that is, in our time, about noon. It's the hottest part of the day. And normally, anybody that's going to get water at the well, that they get water from each day, has to walk quite a long ways, and they have to carry heavy water jars of some kind to the well and back to their home. And it would be very traditional because uh, Israel especially at this particular time of year, is very hot at noon. And so typically most people would gather in the morning or gather in the evening together. But we know that the Samaritan woman shows up at noon, and we know, as you are, are fully aware, because of her story, she doesn't show up in the morning and she doesn't show up in the evening because that's when so many people are there 
she would have to talk to people or people would find some way to avoid her because of her history and because of her story. So she's there at noon because she knows that no one from the village will be there. She's there to avoid contact and conversation with anybody else. And so she's there at noon at a very warm part of the day, and she's there to avoid people. And doggone it, she gets there, and there's this man on top of that, a man that as a woman she's not supposed to even talk to, and worse than that, there's only one person there, Jesus himself. But the woman has to get her water. So she comes to this place in verse 9, and the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Because remember in verse 7 he said, Give me a drink. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I don't think she said that, but I think that's implied, obviously. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, it's interesting. Jesus could have said he could have, that he would give you water to drink. But it's significant that Jesus said living water because that changes the nature of the water that Jesus is describing. Because the water that's in the well is not living water. The water... Is, will provide sustenance, but the reality is if it's sat there for a long time or if, it's, or if the well is not producing very well, what will happen is the water will begin to get putrid and could be dangerous to drink. So when Jesus says, I'm going to give you living water, he's talking about, and this would have registered with the Samaritan woman, he's talking about a different type of water. He's talking about water that's pure, that's like run over mountain streams. It's like uh, the water that makes Coors beer, if you could say it. Remember those commercials? <laughs> uh, why did that just come to my head? <laughs> I have no idea. It wasn't even in my nose. It just flat, just came right in my head, in my brain, right at that moment. Weird. Anyways. So this water that Jesus describes would catch your attention because it's different. This is going to be different than the water that she's going to draw out of the well. So he's piqued her interest in this exchange. And so verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. <coughs> the water that I will give him will become in, a in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now we know that after this, there's this exchange with Jesus because he tells the woman, you know, why don't you go get your husband and we'll give him some of the water too. And she said, well, you know, I'm not married. And he says, I know it's true. You've been with five men. And she, he prophesies and he, he reads, you know, he reads her life like a book. 
Helen covers everything about her, but she realizes as the conversation continues, this is a, this is a man, and not only is this a man, but this is a man that I can trust. She has a, a, a disagreement or a dispute with him about worship, and she tries to, to understand how it is that she could worship him, and he says, well, the Father's looking for people that will worship me in spirit and in truth. It's not about your ethnicity. It's not about... Uh, it's not even about the fact that you're a woman, I'm a man. It's about the fact that you worship the Father in spirit and truth. And that's why everything will be different. And so we pivot to the second part of the story, verse 27, when the disciples come back. I want to mention something before I forget. The disciples come back. And as we look at this point of the story, just make a note of something. Notice how many people they come back with to introduce to Jesus. Okay? Pay attention. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out from the town and were coming to him, and meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. So I want you to notice something. In this first part of the story, Jesus says to the disciples in verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He had said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. So the disciples said, who, Has anyone brought him food? And Jesus said, my food's to do the will of him who sent me. So the first thing that I want us to see about this part of the story is this about ourselves. Along with the disciples, we are, we are all created to participate in eternity. Jesus functioned with a perspective of bringing heaven to earth. And so in every situation, whether it's victory or loss, whether it's hope or hopelessness, whether it's joy or sadness, whatever the situation, we are created in Christ Jesus as new creatures to participate in eternity and help bringing eternity's perspectives to people in the situations they find themselves. And when Jesus says his food was to do the will of the Father, he may have been thinking of Moses who said, man doesn't live by bread alone, on every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, we participate in eternity with the responsibility and the privilege to give the word of God to people and let the word of God bear fruit in their lives. God created his, uh, all of us to be his messengers, his vessels, his temples in which the Holy Spirit lives. And if, if we spend our life in the substance of things, in the, the lesser things, that are part of any season, like the Christmas season or any other season, if we spend our time focused on those things that are finite and not eternal in nature, we will lose the opportunity and we will not be fulfilling our responsibility, our responsibility to participate in eternal things. To participate in eternal things and eternity and impact people's lives with that 
is the way we keep our keep the living water flowing through us. It's the way that we enjoy freedom. It's the way we enjoy invigoration and flourishing in our life. And Jesus was explaining to the disciples that being in fellowship with the Father and accomplishing his work means doing things which satisfy us more deeply than even food can satisfy us. No offense, John. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, Jesus intentionally says, I'll give you living water. Can you remember another time later, er, uh, later in John that Jesus talks about water in the same way? John chapter 7, Jesus, on the last day of the feast, on that great day, Jesus stood up and he cried, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That means eternity is bubbling up out of us. And now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So, first of all, we are created to participate in eternity. And we are created to do a work, a specific work, to follow what Jesus was doing with the woman at the well. And this work is urgent, and it should stir us to compassion. So if we look back at the passage again, verse 35, Jesus says, do not say, do you not say there are yet four months and comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. A farmer plants and patiently waits for the harvest. Jesus is saying that the harvest is already here. That's similar to what Jesus said in Matthew, as Matthew records, you know, when Jesus says, has compassion on the people for they are harassed and without a shepherd. And he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Who are the laborers? Well, if you take out your phone and you turn on your camera and you put it in selfie mode, you are one. We are the laborers. It's us. And you know, one of the things that amazes me as we continue to live here on Long Island the statistics have not changed a whole lot in the eight and a half years that we've been here. And that is that it's still around 3% of Suffolk County and Nassau County of the people that live on this island have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe that number's gone up just a little bit. But I know that there are people out there that are hungry and ready to hear the message of the gospel the work that we are supposed to be doing in sharing the gospel with them and re-gifting Jesus to them. I mentioned to you that through the equip school at Center Point, I just finished last Tuesday night teaching on the life of Christ. And I was amazed out of the 14 people in the class, I would say a little over half of them have been in church probably most of their life. But I was amazed that about half of the class have come to know Jesus sometime in the last five to seven years. Some have Roman Catholic background. Some grew up with a Greek Orthodox father. Some grew up not going to church at all until they met somebody that knew somebody that introduced them to Jesus and invited them to come to Center Point. 
a few years ago, a few uh, weeks ago, uh, November 15th, when you had Bill Percello here. And you all remember Bill? You know, Bill is an attorney. And it wasn't until someone introduced him to Centerpoint that lived across the backyard of his house about, uh, I think Bill told me about 13 or 14 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. Bill didn't know anything about Jesus until that day. And so Bill dove in with both feet, got involved with Centerpoint, got involved in growing in his relationship with Jesus, went through the equip classes, now is on staff at Centerpoint as a pastor and is going to be doing the launch of the East Meadow Campus in 2021. So our job is to re-gift Jesus to people who may be like Bill Percello, who may be the ones that somewhere down the road are bringing an influence on a whole bunch of other people. So the other thing is, we are to share in this work together. That's what's so encouraging to me is that all of us, all of you get to participate with, with a group of people, with an organization, with a church that has this focus in mind. In verses 36 to 38, Jesus says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here is the saying that holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Here's what struck me so much as I was teaching this Equipping Christ class. I was getting to reap the benefits of somebody else's labor. I mean, there was one person, when she did a presentation on Tuesday night, that she had, the, each, each person did a 10-minute presentation about something about the life of Christ. This one person who's been a believer for three years, she was so exuberant and filled with joy and so enthusiastic. I mean, I was like ready to shout when she finished. And I got to reap the benefit of somebody else laboring to bring Jesus into her life. And her joy, I'm telling you, her joy was contagious. When, when I went back in the larger Zoom on this Zoom class, that's the way everybody in class was. Everybody was clapping and everyone, Antoinette, that, oh man, it's so great what you shared. Everyone was stirred. And that's what God is going to do for all of us as we get to watch baptisms and participate in days like we got to enjoy. I remember, I was thinking about this the other day, John, the day we did ba the baptism. And then that same day when Bob came out and said, I need to get baptized too. And everybody, we're going to get to participate in that over and over and over again. I think most of you know this. Maybe you, maybe you didn't know this, but you know all the little small houses that are around Stony Brook School? They're all small because they used to be little bungalows and cottages for people to stay at for the Bible camp that existed at Stony Brook School in the late 1800s and early 1900s for every summer for years. Great Bible teachers would come through because there was a deposit of Christian, a seed of Christian faith deposited in this region. 
And you and I, we all get to be participants in reaping the benefits of what people did before us. Paul knew this when he said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field and God's building. My friend George Wren, that passed away this last year from a bout with COVID, it was because of a friend that re-gifted Jesus to George and said, George, you need to come to a Billy Grand Crusade with me. His life was broken. I think he was going through a divorce. He didn't know what he was going to do with his life. And he went to the Billy Grand Crusade, and then the invitation came. And if you ever watch some of the old Billy Grand Crusade videos, hundreds and thousands of people started going to the front. George said, Billy Graham kicked me in the butt. He, and then he laughed. He says, I don't mean Billy Graham did, but I mean Jesus did. Because somebody else took the time to re-gift Jesus to George. And so when George passed this last March or this last April, he went into eternity with a relationship with Jesus Christ. The last thing is, it's a joyous work that opens hearts and spiritual understanding. Verse 35 and verses 39 to 42. Do you not say there are yet four months and comes a harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, and because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. And she said earlier, you got to come and see him. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and now we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. How many people did the disciples bring back? Zero. How many people did the Samaritan woman bring back? We, she brought the whole town back. So here's the disciples, the followers of the rabbi. They bring zero. But here's this woman who's inadequate, who's broken, who doesn't deserve the message of the gospel, quote-unquote. But she's the one that re-gives Jesus and doesn't keep the meaning of the Messiah to herself. Absolutely not. Her message is, come and see. And this is one of the greatest phrases in the Bible. It's the same phrase we hear in John chapter 1 when one of the disciples says to another, I don't know, you just got to come and see. And that's exactly how this is supposed to work. Revivals break out because one person was willing to share about how Jesus changed their life. And if you think about it, she didn't even have a really good testimony. What's your testimony, honey? Oh, well, my testimony is I had, I was married five times and, you know, I was so ashamed of myself. I went to the well at the hottest part of the day and all this kind of stuff. I mean, she had a horrible testimony. But her testimony was probably the greatest testimony of all because of the saving nature of what Jesus did. Not one of us knows 
which one of our spiritual conversations could break out into revival. And I just want to remind you of what we're joining as we partner with Centerpoint, and that is to give everyone on Long Island multiple opportunities to hear and respond to Jesus from Brooklyn to Montauk. And so we all have one primary job as we enter into this Christmas season, which is to re-gift Jesus, to make it about Jesus and re-gift the truth that he's given to all of us. And even though it's hard because of COVID, we can do it in lots of ways. We can do it through social media. We can do it through our phone. We can be a living testimony on a Zoom call, wherever it might be, but everywhere we have the opportunity, we have a job to do, which is to re-gift Jesus. But not only just re-gift Jesus, but in the spirit of this day of Advent, which is the spirit of joy, we get to re-gift Jesus with great, exceeding, abundant joy. That one deserves a shout and an amen. So we're going to get ready to receive communion together, which we get to receive with great joy because all, all of, because of all that Jesus has done for us. So I think everybody, did everybody get a communion packet when you came in? As we celebrate communion together, that's a good opportunity for us to remember what I said earlier. As Jesus was sharing that last supper with the disciples, remember, we're looking back in hindsight. We've got the advantage of looking back and seeing how all of it makes sense, what he was doing. But just imagine what it was like for the disciples. He broke the bread and said, this is my body. He had the cup of wine. He said, this is my blood. And they're like, uh-huh, yeah, that's good. That's amen, Jesus. All right. Without really understanding what he was talking about. They understood it in faith. And as we share communion this morning, I want to remind us that that's the nature of our journey, isn't it? That we continue to press on, even though there are times we just don't understand. But just like the disciples around Jesus at the Last Supper, we continue in faith that Jesus will help us understand it someday. And that's what we trust him for. So I want you to take the, the wafer, the piece of bread that represents his body. And Lord, I just ask that you would bless this piece of bread. Bless it to the nourishment of our spiritual, emotional, and physical bodies so that we might gain strength once again and perspective about the future. We bless the bread. Receive the body. And Lord, we know that the, the blood represents for us the opportunity to experience cleansing. 
so, Lord, we ask that you would purify our eyesight, our spiritual eyes. Strengthen our hearing so that we can see and we can hear you better. And so, Lord, wash over us this morning as we receive this little cup of juice that represents your blood and purify and cleanse us in areas that are unclean so that we might be able to stand straight and tall and with great joy and exuberance re-gift Jesus to others because of all that you've done for us. We bless the cup in Jesus' name. Let's receive the cup. Stand together with me as we sing.